Okay, morning. While the buckets are going round, you might want to, if you've got a Bible with you, be turning to Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read from there in a moment. If you haven't got a Bible with you, then, uh, and you want to follow along, the words should appear on the screen behind me. So you'll be able to, to read them there. We're going to read uh, from Genesis 37, verse 12, through to the end of the chapter. See, we have this awkward moment. Because I've started speaking, everyone's stopped. But I'm waiting for the buckets to go around. So we're all silent. It's all right. I'm going to start in a moment, don't worry. The buckets have made their way around, nearly. They have. It's all right. Genesis 37 and verse 12. Now his brothers, Joseph's brothers, had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue, them, rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. 
after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. What an ugly, sinful mess. All these verses, we're we're focused in actually primarily on Joseph's brothers. They're tending the sheep. Jacob sends Joseph to them. They plot to kill Joseph. They put him in a pit. They sell him as a slave. They cover it all up and they lie to their father. And then they try to comfort him. And it all centers on their hatred and jealousy and anger towards Joseph bubbling up into action. As we focus on them, we see the ugliness of sin and the pain that is caused as they betray and reject their brother. So as we look at these verses today, we can ask this big question. Where do we find hope as we face up to the ugliness of sin and the pain of rejection? Where do we find it? Let's look at the story together. You see, as the story begins... In verse 12, there's no obvious sign of trouble. His brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks. Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well. Go and see if all is well with your brothers. Go and bring, come and bring word back to me. And he sent him off. Why is Jacob wanting to send Joseph to his brothers? Well, we don't really know. Maybe he's got a general concern for them. Perhaps they've been away some time. We, we hear they're grazing the sheep near Shechem, which, for one thing, is a reasonable way away. It's kind of 50 miles away, potentially, from where they were. Also, it's a place, if you look back, and you can do this later in chapter 34, where Jacob's brother, uh, Joseph's brothers have something of a history with the Shechemites. Perhaps he's got some concern. But he wants Joseph to go and see how they're doing. Seems a fairly sensible thing. So Joseph travels to Shechem. This 50-mile journey would have taken 
That's a few days. He's gone to Shechem. He's looking around. He can't find them. Where are they? And he finds this, this bloke comes up to him, doesn't know him, gives him directions. Oh, you see, they've gone on ahead. They've gone somewhere else. There's no sign of trouble. You can imagine jo- Jacob is not expecting trouble. Otherwise, why would he have sent Joseph, his favorite son, Joseph, the one he loves so much? Why would he send him? And yet, for Jacob, the chapter will end with such pain. Believing Joseph killed by a wild beast. Yet it started so mundane, so uneventful, nothing ominous. Go and see them. Bring back words. You see, we can be so caught out by surprise when things go wrong. I didn't start out that way. I didn't see that coming. How can it be? God, it started so well. What went wrong? Things can hit us by surprise so easily. Things can come out of the blue. Looking back to the Six Nations, I can't imagine many England fans when Stuart McAnally got the ball for Scotland and ran in, beating all the English backs to the line to score what was surely a consolation try. No one expected they're going to score six in a row and you're going to need a last-minute try to equalise. No one could have expected it. No Scotland fan expected it. No one could have known. I had to drop that one in there. I haven't had a chance to use it. But no one could have expected it. Trouble comes out of nowhere, it seems. But as he approaches Dothan, we hear, they saw him in the distance and they plotted to kill him. Bang, here we go. Here comes that dreamer. Let's get rid of him. Here he comes. What is going on? We see their jealousy, their frustration, their hatred building up, bubbling up within them. But what we see, there's something settled about this. Some settled hatred. This isn't, here comes that dreamer. This isn't the moment that Joseph's just perhaps slightly overly forwardly presented his dreams to them. This isn't the moment that Joseph's just gone, here you go guys, what are you going to make of this? No, this is sometime later. After a period of separation, they've been away looking after the sheep. They've been away. Joseph's been at home, it appears, with Jacob. Not a knee-jerk reaction in that sense. But after this period of separation, nothing has cooled. Nothing has calmed down in their minds. If anything, it's just got hotter. You see, seeing him, in, seeing him in the distance, that dreamer wearing his fancy robe, that's all it takes to set them off. So it seems like it's from nowhere. Now, of course, when we look back on verse 1 to 11 and we see it all written down, we could say, well, we can see the signs were there. We can see the signs were there that... Joseph, who brought a bad report back to his father about them. Joseph, who his father 
Caesar's the favourite and he's given him the fancy robe. Joseph, the one who's had the dreams and says, you're going to bow down to me. We can see it written plainly. They hated him. But on the surface, what would it have looked like? Was there loads of signs of things going on? Were they actively going out against him all the time? It would appear not. Perhaps it wasn't obvious. Certainly it didn't appear to be to Jacob because he's quite happily sending Joseph off to see them. Seems to come out of nowhere. But it seems they've been waiting for their opportunity. They've brooded on all of this. All this stuff. He's the favourite. Who does he think he is talking about us bowing down to him? Who does he think he is going back and reporting to Father about us? He's eating them up inside. So we see perhaps they've been waiting for a good moment. Here they are, out 65 miles away from Dad. Out in the middle of nowhere, perhaps. Out in the, the wilderness where the sheep are grazing. Secret. Out of sight. What an opportunity. So easy to cover it up. Let's say a wild animal attacked him. See, a point for us at this point. So easily to convince ourselves sometimes that that stuff in secret, it's okay. It's okay, it's not bad. No, one, no one's going to find out about it. That's not a problem. No one knows about it, so it's okay. The things we keep hidden, the way we are in private, the way we are when no one else is around. You see, the enemy's cunning. He does sow subtle lies to us to lead us into sin. It's secret. You can cover it up. Don't worry about it. No one will ever know. Well, God can see. But you see that his brothers, they've not dealt with the niggles. They've not dealt with the pain and the hurt and, and whatever and the jealousy that's been building up. They've not dealt with it. They've not dealt with that moment when Joseph came and presented the first dream. What? And then when he came again and presented the second dream, the moment when Jacob said, look, I'm giving Joseph this, this wonderful coat. There's none for you guys, just for him. They've not dealt with it. And over the time, it's just built up within them. And then at this moment, as they see him, this is when it explodes out of them. Let's kill him. In fact, perhaps... Joseph's brothers, right at this moment, could be the perfect case study in how not to deal with rejection and anger and jealousy. Don't keep hold of it. Don't brood on it. Don't let it eat you up inside till that moment of, there he is. Boom! I'm just going to explode. See, that's the challenge to us. As the New Testament encourages us, as Paul encourages us in Ephesians chapter 4. Joseph's brothers have, have held on to this anger and hurt and pain and, and jealousy and let it build up and build up. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 4 and verse 25? 
Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. See, there's all sorts of things that can happen that can just mm, get in. Oh, that hurts. That's not nice. Oh, I don't even know why I'm reacting to it, but it doesn't feel good. Why is he being favoured over me? Why is this happening? What? Why did they say that to me? The encouragement to us, the exhortation to us, deal with it. Deal with it. Take it to God. Don't let it build up and churn away and eat up at you and, and sit there and keep going. We see what happens here in the worst of cases when that happens. So many things can knock us or get us in our relationships, in our, in our marriages, in our friendships, amongst us as a people, in our workplaces, all sorts of situations. The encouragement here, deal with it quickly. Little niggles, small disagreements, stuff that really hurts. See, all through the New Testament, we get those statements that say something, one another. Love one another. Build one another up. Encourage one another. Over and over and over and over and over again. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Why are they repeated so often? Because it's so important. Encouragement to us as we look to this story, deal with things. Repent if necessary. Find healing from hurts today. Kill him. That's their first conclusion. But then verse 21, we see Reuben. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And then we're let into the secret that Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So all Reuben said at this point is, let's not kill him, let's put him in the cistern, let's do that bit, let's put, throw him in the cistern, but we won't kill him. We'll just put him there. He's got no further plan, he's saying to his brothers. His brothers might think, well, that's great, actually, then we can leave him in the cistern and he'll die, but technically, we didn't kill him. But Reuben's got a plan. Is it a great plan? Is he... He's buying himself some time. He's saving Joseph's life. Or is it a bit of a cop-out? Reuben, do you really want to make this great stand? He doesn't really want to come out there and then in front of his brothers and say, guys, this is wrong. Let's let him go back to dad. But he doesn't want to go through with the plan either. You see, we can sympathize so much with Reuben. He seems to know this truth. I can't let this happen. This is awful. This would be terrible. What on earth would we be doing? We can't kill our brother. But at the same time, he's fearful. 
He can't bring himself to fully take a stand against his brothers right there and then, and he gives in to fear. I'll buy some time. I'll rescue him later in secret. Perhaps he too fears rejection. What will they say? What will my brother say if I stand up now? Also, probably Reuben's got all sorts of mixed, conflicting emotions going on. Number one, he knows us. Jacob's eldest son. Jacob's likely to hold him primarily accountable. We're going back saying Joseph's dead. He's going to look to me. And he also isn't in Jacob's good books particularly anyway. Again, you can look later. Chapter 35, verse 22, and see what Reuben has done with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. At the same time, he probably shares a lot of his brother's irritation with Joseph. He's not saying, oh, no, actually, I really like Joseph. We don't get that impression. We don't get that sense. He just knows something's wrong here. But he's all over the place. Wants to do the right thing, but giving in to fear. We can so often know what we need to do. Perhaps we've heard God. But it's so easy to give in to fear. Ask Reuben here, what will they say? How will my brothers react? Will they reject me too? They've clearly rejected Joseph. If I stand up with him, what's going to happen to me? It's challenging for us in terms of speaking out. Not staying silent when perhaps others are ridiculing Jesus. Perhaps when we've got opportunities to share our faith and we... Yeah, I go to church. And we just feel terrified. Perhaps when it comes to tackling issues of injustice or things in our culture today and we're just not comfortable with what's going on, but what can I say in the moment? What is going to happen if I speak up right now? We can so... Sympathize with Reuben's fear. But then we can also share his regrets and his dismay in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? As he sees, my plan hasn't worked. I can't rescue him, he's gone. What's happened? Why didn't I stand up and say something before? Why was I not more bold? You see, this is a regret and a resentment even that Reuben carries for the 20 years or so that, that Joseph is away from them. So we see when they're before Joseph in, in chapter 42, as we'll get to in the story in time, uh, in chapter 42, verse 22, they're, they're worried, what's going on here? Or oh, we seem to be being challenged. I'm not sure what's going to happen. We've just come to get some grain. Can we, can we do that? And they're, they're worried. Surely we're being punished. This is verse 21 of chapter 42. We're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when, we pleaded with, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. And we hear Reuben. Still, 20 years on, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? 
but you wouldn't listen. And now we must give an accounting for his blood. He's still holding this. He's still there. Again, today for us, we may know, we may know of countless situations. We know I just didn't make a stand. Or I kind of did, but oh, I'm just feeling the guilt of it. And the regret of missing the opportunity, well, don't carry that. Reuben carried it for years. Today, come to him, come to Jesus, deal with things. Maybe repent, find healing today. But then, of course, after Reuben's intervention, we come to the main, the central act. What do they actually do to to Joseph? Verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. Joseph arrives. They strip him of his robe, that robe that spoke to them so much. You're your your father's favourite. Well, no more. And they threw him in a pit. Once they've done that, they sit down to eat. Oh, how easy it is to normalise sin. How easy it is to have, what have I just done? Just move on, move on. Their brother's left to die in a pit and they sit down and have a meal together. But again, so easy for us to look back and go, oh, what have I done? But as they sit down and have a meal, we see the story takes another twist. They look up and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah has a bright idea. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. And so, of course, they then do sell him to the Ishmaelites, to the Midianites. They're using those words interchangeably. But what's Judah doing? Is this, a real, is this another really good attempt? I'm going to save Joseph's life here. Is he helping? Is he merely salving his own conscience? I don't want his blood on my hands. Is he? That's the, uh, the tone of the words, if we look at them, would suggest thinking this is a good opportunity to make some money. Well, we don't know all of Judah's motives. But the result is that Joseph isn't left to die in the desert, but he's sold as a slave. The favoured son has been stripped of that which identified him as the favourite. He's been thrown into a pit and he's been sold as a slave. He has been utterly rejected by his brothers. And, as, and the brothers, as we said, they will return to their father. With Joseph's robe dipped in blood. And they cover up what they've done. They leave.
leave their father to draw his own conclusion. Is this your son's robe? Well, what must have happened? We'll leave you to work it out. And we see in all of it the grief and the pain and the guilt of this ugly sin which will last for years. Verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. His sons and daughters uh, came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And his father wept for him. We can hear Jacob's pain. We've seen already as we looked at what Reuben carried for all those years. The brothers are carrying this guilt for 20 years or more. And we can reflect on the real pain and suffering. Jacob, Joseph, sorry, has been utterly rejected, betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave. He set off from his father's house as his father's favorite, the one he loved above all, and now he's a slave in a foreign land. What pain and rejection. And as we reflect on this pain and the suffering, we can reflect and think on pain and suffering in our own lives or in those around us. Stuff that we may be carrying. And the question is real. Where do we find hope as we face up to the ugliness of sin and the pain of rejection? Maybe for some here, maybe for many today, you know this pain. You've known rejection. You all too easily can identify with Joseph. For you, perhaps not a physical pit and being sold into slavery. But the betrayal and the rejection is just as real. Perhaps for others you can identify with Jacob suffering the loss. My son has gone. And perhaps for others of us we can identify with the brothers all too easily. Maybe, maybe a, multi, a mixture of all of them. I caused this pain. I got it wrong. I messed up. Well, I believe that healing and forgiveness and release and freedom is possible today, even as we've been singing about this morning, even as we've heard through our worship time. So the question is this, where do we find hope as we face up to the ugliness of sin and the pain of rejection that we see so clearly here in this passage? I suggest that this story shows us hope and the source of hope and healing in two ways. Because as we stare at the ugliness of sin and the pain of rejection in this passage, we see that hope is found in the sovereign plan of God and the wonder of what Jesus has done. Firstly, we see, as we lift our focus, we see, even here, even in the midst of all of this, we see God's plan is being outworked. As we lift our eyes away from just fixating in on the pain and the mess and the ugliness, Let's reflect on this story. God has given Joseph dreams. His brothers will bow down to him. And Joseph's dreams are all just part of a, a small part of a much bigger plan God has to save his people. 
It goes way beyond Joseph even. God spoke to Abraham back in chapter 12 in Genesis. Wonderful verses in chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's given Abraham a massive promise. And now Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is sat here thinking, what's happening? My son is gone. In chapter 15, we get some more insight. Just hints at it. God speaks to Abraham again in verse 12 of chapter 15. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And then he confirms to Abraham that you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God has given Abraham a massive, massive promise. And he's shown him there's going to be ups and downs on the way. Big downs, big ups. This is not minor stuff. God's plan ultimately is for Abraham's family to go to Egypt, to be slaves for 400 years, to grow into a great nation and to come out and take the land. This is God's plan. He's got a massive plan at work here and that's not all of it. But do we see right here God's plan involves Joseph going before his brothers to Egypt So that through him, God can save the family from famine. We'll read about it as we go through by bringing them all to Egypt. We see all this mess and pain and sin and evil and yuck. And yet, in the midst of it all, God is working out his plan. God hasn't disappeared. God hasn't gone to sleep. God hasn't kind of, is not going to have to wake up in a minute and go, man, this has gone wrong. I'm going to have to work it out. God is at work. It's a much bigger plan than just this moment. You see, what's this promise that God's given Abraham? I'm going to bless all nations through you. Well, as we explore that more, we see what is God going to do? God, eventually through Abraham's family, one will come in Abraham's family. It's not Jacob, it's not Joseph, it's not any of them, it's Jesus. And through him, all nations will be blessed. So that one day, as we sang earlier, I believe in the resurrection, when Jesus comes again, everything will be made new. This is a massive plan. Do we get this thing? This moment is in the middle of that massive plan. That that plan, that huge, awesome, universal, all over the... Everything plan is being worked out right here as Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. As Joseph's life doesn't end in a pit in the desert, Joseph is taken to Egypt and God's plan carries on. God is advancing his plan and he won't be stopped. You see, here right in the midst of all this pain and mess 
and sin, we see the sovereignty of God. You see, Joseph's story is about to end. Death at the hands of his brothers. Well, how do we see it turn around? Well, do we see, well, this big hero steps up. Behold, this is not the will of God. You will stop. Well, perhaps it could have been Reuben, but he didn't. We don't know. Well, or is it, is it Joseph's the hero? He's been thrown in a pit, but somehow like some kind of Bruce Willis in Die Hard type character, bruised and battered, he's going to come crawling out of the pit, beat his way out of his brothers and live another day. No. Joseph is taken to Egypt, saved from death and taken to Egypt through a combination of his fearful oldest brother half-heartedly trying to save his life and stand up to his brothers. Another brother looking to profit from the whole affair. Some Midianite traders who are just passing by, minding their own business. And the fact that actually, whilst Joseph was looking for his brothers, he met some unnamed stranger who told him, Ah, I overheard your brother say they were going to Dothan. Well, we can talk about, oh, wow, well, that was lucky, wasn't it? No, as we look at this story, we see the mess and the ugliness and the, and the I'm going to use it again, the yuck of it all. But we have to marvel at the sovereign plan of God, that God is working in and through all of this to carry out his plans and purposes. This is amazing. He is in control. And you see, this is what Joseph has understood over the years as he addresses his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 19 to 21. They are terrified. Dad's dead now. Joseph can take his revenge. Chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And this incredible line, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. You see, Joseph's got hold of something. In the face of such betrayal, such rejection, how could he ever forgive them? Joseph trusts God. He's given it to God. God intended it for good. You see, that's not a glib statement from Joseph. You see, we can accidentally do that. We can accidentally make it a kind of glib statement. In the midst of trial and and hardship and the aftermath of sin and the outworking of it all, ah, well, pull yourself together, cheer up, God's in control. (laughs) Ha ha. You see, Joseph's not doing that. He's not, when we get to chapter 15, he's not going, never mind, here's a funny story to tell the grandkids. Do you remember remember that time when you all tried to sell me as a slave? What jokers they were. He's not doing that. He's not doing that. There's no downplaying of the hurt and the pain. You intended harm. But you see, it would be so easy for Joseph to have got stuck there, and for us, as we face pain, to be bitter, bitterness and resentment, to have just clung there. You intended harm. They did this to me. 
I'm trapped in this, but it's their fault. How could I possibly move on? But you see, for Joseph, there is real pain and, bit- and, re- and betrayal and rejection here. And yet, look, here is the comfort and the strength and the, and the, the rock to cling on to in the midst of the pain and the rejection and the mess, God is in control. His plans will not be thwarted. He is sovereign and he is at work. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, verse 28, we know, brothers, God works in all things for the good of those who love him. God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Conforming us working on us, working in and through us to be more like Jesus. You see, it's so easy for us to just look at this one of two ways, one end or the other. Whoa, this is grim. I couldn't be Joseph. How awful. This sounds terrible. This doesn't sound like God's plan to me. This sounds like God's disappeared. What's going on? Or, looking at it with the whole sweep of the story before us, Wow, amazing how it worked out. It can't have been that bad, really. It can't have been that bad because God was in control working it out all the way through. So it must have been okay. Joseph must have been fine. Must have been nice down in that pit. And the slave traders, I'm sure they were lovely to him. No. It's not one or the other. It's not either of those. See, here we see the genuine pain and rejection and betrayal and sin and mess and... God working out his sovereign plan in and through it all. And that is where we find comfort and strength, when we find ourselves in the pit. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. Otherwise, we end up having to conclude, oh, I must have got it wrong. Or, God must have left me. Or, it's all their fault that I'm in this mess. God is with us. God is at work in all things for those who love him. You see, we can also fall into the trap of thinking about it in a kind of tick box type of way. What do I need to learn to turn off this bad situation? That's why I must be in this pit. There must be something specific I've got to learn. Once I learn that, I can turn it off. Tick the box. Now, God's got a much bigger plan. God's at work in and through all things. What do I need to learn? What did Joseph need to learn? Perhaps just this. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Keep trusting me. Keep trusting me. I'm still here, Joseph. I'm still here. I'm still at work. I'm still doing it. I'm still with you. I'm still making my plans and purposes come about. Find hope and comfort and strength in the midst of real pain and rejection, in the midst of the ugliness of sin, knowing that God is in control. And that God, who loves you, 
who knows everything, who, is the, who knows the best of everything. He is at work in all things. As we step back even further, we find hope, yes, in the sovereignty of God's plan, but we find hope in Jesus. We step back further and we see we're pointed to the answer for us. Where do we find hope? And as we look at this story, we see Joseph, one who was sent by his father on a long journey, sent to his own, to his brothers, to his family, to the ones who knew him and should have accepted him, and yet was utterly rejected. One who was going to save many, rejected by his brothers. And it's not hidden that we see reflected in this story. We see Jesus' story. We see Jesus sent by his Father, sent unto his own, as John 1 shows us. To his own, but his own didn't recognize him. They rejected him. But he would save many. Joseph ended up a slave. Jesus, as Philippians tells us, took on the very nature of a servant, and yet he wasn't spared death. He died for us all. You see, the ultimate example in the story of Jesus of people's evil, sinful actions and God's sovereign plan being worked out at one and the same time. As the crowd cry, crucify. As the leaders say, we're a plotting. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to deal with him. As Pilate washes his hands of him, says, I want nothing to do with it. But as God is saving the world through his death on the cross. See, Joseph points us to Jesus. As Dan mentioned last week, Joseph is referred to many times as a type of Christ. We see the similarities in the story. But also this is where this story leads. This is where this story goes. This is God's promise to Abraham worked out as we've already said. God is saving Jacob's family through Joseph, leading his people out of Egypt through Moses, settling in the land through Joshua, going into exile but coming back, but so that one day Jesus would come. All leading to, the, to Jesus coming to be the saviour and he would be the one who even as we look at this story and go, look at this mess, and we reflect and go, look at my mess. Jesus is the one who deals with it. So here is where we find hope and healing and forgiveness. In the midst of all of it, whether we're feeling the guilt and regret of Reuben. I tried, but I was scared. Or the brothers, what have we done? What have we done? How do I get rid of this guilt that I'm carrying? Or the despair, perhaps the regret of Jacob, I've lost my son. What could I have done more? What if I hadn't ever sent him? Or ultimately the rejection of Joseph. Look what they've done to me. Where do we find hope? Well, we don't look ultimately to Joseph as the hero. 
This is God's plan. This is God's story. This is his purposes that are being worked out. And so we look ultimately to Jesus, the one who can save us, the one who does bring healing, the one who brings forgiveness, the one who, ha- who knows what it's like. In the real pain of rejection, whatever has happened, however long ago, come to Jesus. It's Hebrews 4 wonderfully tells us. In Hebrews 4 and verse 14, what kind of high priest do we have? What kind of high priest do we have? Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, the one tempted in every way. Jesus, the one rejected in every way. Jesus, the one who suffered in every way. Come to him. He knows what it's like. Where do we find hope? We trust in God's plan. And we come to him. We come to Jesus, the one who suffered death for us. That we may know true forgiveness and hope and freedom and comfort. Amen.